One other uh, event that took place in the lives of some of our members in the last little while is that Heather uh, and Muriel lost their mother. And some of you knew her and her faith and the blessing that she was to so many, and she certainly was an incredible blessing to her family. And so we, uh, we pray for you, and we pray for you, and uh, want very much for God to bless you in your grief. I know it's, uh, it's a difficult thing. I've gone through that. It's not easy. You know, sometimes we think, oh, well, the, you know, a person is so up in years, and it's, you know, that we expect this kind of thing to happen. And, of course, in some sense that's true. But when they go, it hurts just as badly every time. So we pray for Heather and Muriel and their family for sure. Even if you have never heard of the Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas, there's a sense in which they have drastically altered your life, at least in some small way. And even if you're completely against the way that Benny Hinn presents the gospel of Jesus Christ as he's on television asking people for money, He has greatly influenced your walk with Christ. And even if you know next to nothing about Ferdinand II of Aragon and Isabella I of Castile, the two of them ruled Spain in the latter part of the 1400s, and they changed things for Christians living in the 21st century. And even if you feel like you're about as ignorant of and untouched by and could care less about Pope Urban II, who lived from 1042 to 1099, as you could possibly be, the fact is that he has greatly impacted your faith. And here's why. Pope Urban II greatly impacted your faith when he proclaimed the first Christian crusade in 1091, inciting Christians from all over Europe to try and free the Holy Land from Muslim rule. And ever since, we've been dealing with the outcome. And Ferdinand II of Aragon and Isabella I of Spain, who, by the way, were the ones that financed Columbus, changed things for Christians when they initiated the Spanish Inquisition in 1478 in order to drive the Muslims out of Spain and Portugal. It was brutal, and unfortunately, we sometimes wear that. It comes our way. And Benny Hinn, every time he's on television putting on his demonstration of healing in the name of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, asking viewers for money so that he can buy another Rolls Royce, further convinces non-Christians in our world that a good portion of us are irrational, money-grabbing opportunists preying on the sick and lonely. And it would be nice if they wouldn't think that about us, but they sometimes do because of people like that. And Westboro Baptist Church of Topeka, Kansas, this is the group that goes around staging protests at people's funerals. They protest against lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual actions. They protest against politicians. They have a website, and the the name of their website is this, www.godhates.com. Fags.com. And when they do that, it drives further a wedge between a segment of our society and Christianity, 
when society supposes that there is some part of Westboro Baptist Church in all of us. And the fact is that if you want to find an easy discussion partner, if you're lonely and you want to have a discussion with somebody, all you have to do is stand around at work and start talking about your opinions on gay marriage. You will have people come and talk to you. And especially if you do so in a way that talks as if you are a Christian who would have an opinion about that. They will join you. And soon others will pile on. And there will be lots of discussion and you'll be right at the center of that. So if you're lonely and you need someone to discuss things with, just bring that up. And you're going to have a conversation. You may not like it, but you will have that conversation. Recently, I did that on Facebook. Had a conversation. It was amazing how many conversation partners I immediately had who wanted to discuss that issue with me. And my point is, is that there is a whole lot of the world that doesn't think very positively about you and me because we're Christians. A few years ago, there was a book that came out. People were writing books like this, talking about why is it that the world doesn't like Christianity? What does the unchurched person think of Christians? Well, 72% think that the church is full of hypocrites. I'm actually surprised the number's not higher because (laughs) there's way more of us than that. 44% say that Christians tend to get on their nerves. And again, we get on way more people's nerves than that. But here's the one that gets me. 87% of people outside the church view Christians as judgmental. Not loving, not gracious, not giving, not helpful, but judgmental. And there's a lot of things that they can handle, but they can't handle that. I'm tempted to say they can't handle the truth. And we may not think it's true. Like, when I hear these statistics, I think to myself, well, that's not my church. That's not me. That's not how I am. But there's a sense in which it doesn't matter. Because this is what they think. And it greatly impacts their involvement with us as a people. Tom Schultz, who has pastored churches and studied churches and who founded group publishing. Anybody who's taught Bible school in the last 25 years has heard of group publishing. In 2013, he wrote a book called Why Nobody Wants to Go to Church Anymore. That's an interesting title. Are we nobodies? (laughs) Why Nobody Wants to Go to Church Anymore. And here's what he says. It's sad but true. The North American church is shrinking, and it's shrinking fast. God-loving people are leaving in droves, and everything that attracted them in the past simply doesn't work anymore. Is there anything the church can do to turn the tide? And when you hear that kind of language, that's like a desperate kind of man talking. Because for him, and for many of us, the church is our whole life. And to see it struggle is not fun. Well, Schultz isn't the only one. There's some sobering facts. These come from a guy named Ed Stetzer who does all kinds of work on churches. Between 8,000 and 10,000 churches will close their doors in North America in the next year. Now, that doesn't answer the question of how many churches might be planted 
But I guarantee you it's not going to be 8,000. Between 8,000 and 10,000 churches will close their doors in the next year. Between 2010 and 2012, more than 50% of the churches in North America added no new members. None. And each year, nearly 3 million people in the United States alone, and I don't have the statistics on Canada because the book I was looking at didn't have that, stop going to church each year. 3 million they just, just drink that in for a moment. That is not very good news. The good news is that it doesn't have to be that way. And we can ask Legitimate questions about why it is that the church is in fact so unattractive. And so studies have been done, like Schultz has done studies where he goes to unbelievers and the unchurched and he says, why is it that you are so unattracted to what the church is and does? And here are the kind of answers that he gets. Both inside and outside the church, people say, I feel judged. I don't want to be lectured, I want to participate. And that's a specific indictment, by the way, of preaching. Christians are hypocrites. We've already seen the statistics on that. Again, I suggest that perhaps they're actually higher. And the whole notion that God appears to them to be irrelevant, not impacting their lives. And when I look at all of that, I tend to think, well, no, we don't really judge those people. We don't communicate that kind of judgmental heart or spirit, but that's how they feel. And I don't know that people just feel like they're being lectured to all the time. No doubt that's the case some. And we should, in fact, do something about that. But it's, I don't know if that's a huge problem. Christians are hypocrites. Of course we are. But at the same time, when I look out in the room and I think to myself, are you all hypocrites? That's not what strikes me. I do, I have to admit, become a bit concerned about the last one. God does sometimes appear in our lives, I think, to be a bit irrelevant. And so sometimes he doesn't impact our marriages like he should. Sometimes he doesn't impact the way that we make decisions the way he should. Sometimes we as churches operate uh, somewhat independently from him. It's easy for an eldership, and I'm not saying this anything about our eldership, but it's so easy for an eldership to just make business decisions and not to pray earnestly before they make decisions. And so there are times, I suppose, when it does appear as though God is a bit irrelevant and people feel like, well, he's just not doing anything for these people. Why would he do anything for me? Well, that identifies the problem. What else can we do, though, to deal with this? Are there other reasons for dissatisfaction? And is the situation hopeless? And of course, I would say that the answer is no. That God is still God. That his people may at times be hypocrites. We may at times be idiots. But he is not. 
And when he's present in our midst and we allow him to be present in our midst, good things can happen. Wonderful things can happen. And so I appreciate the fact that Tom Schultz doesn't just come up with the reasons why people aren't happy about church. He actually offers some solutions that I think we should at least think about today. And it's interesting, these have nothing to do with methods. You know, there's problems with changing methods. The fact is, is that methods are relatively specific to cultures and to circumstances. Methods also have to change every time a culture changes. So Schultz, as he talks about how things need to be different, he doesn't go specifically to methods. Instead, he talks about attitudinal changes and heart changes that need to be made in light of who Jesus is and who God is that allow the church then to have a completely different view in the eyes of the world. And the fact is, I'm totally in agreement that changes that are most needed in the church today are heart changes. It's interesting to me that when people say something like, I feel judged, if that's true, if John Casella really does judge somebody out there, and they see it, and they think to themselves, that man judges me, and he's a Christian, and that's not right. John has the potential of changing that. John, you can change your heart if you judge people. You can. And the same is true with the whole hypocritical thing. If we really are hypocrites in the way in which we live and talk and treat others, that can be changed. Like the Holy Spirit is not dead. The Holy Spirit is alive and he works within us and we can be transformed. We don't have to be hypocrites. God appears sometimes to be irrelevant. Well, maybe we just need to let him in. Allow him to be relevant in our lives, to change us and impact us. Things can be different. And so there can be heart changes that take place within us and we can be different people. Well, what Schultz identifies are what he calls simple Acts of love. And after doing an awful lot of research, here's what he came up with. And I think this is really legitimate stuff. He says that radical hospitality on the part of Christians toward those in the world would go a long way toward changing their perception. And I think he's right about this. And when he says radical hospitality, he's not talking about, well, we just need to have people over for dinner. We need to make sure that we have a spare bedroom that we always allow someone to come and stay in. That's not the point. The point is, is your life available to others who have needs? Do you have a hospitable kind of lifestyle? Isn't it interesting that in the list of qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 for elders, that one of those is hospitality, being hospitable? And again, I don't think that means make sure you have somebody over for dinner. I think it means, is your life available to others? This is interesting in our circumstance because of where we live in our city, so many of us. We live in a culture in which people come here from other places. And what do they need? They need relationships. They need embracing. They need people to accept them to help them enter into our culture and even into our body. We need to be hospitable people. And what Schultz is saying is that if you go out of your way to be hospitable to people, for people, entering into the lives of people, it goes so far to defeat the notion of what people so often think about Christians. And I think he's right. But it takes an awful lot of time and effort 
and focus to enter into the lives of people. And we're busy. We've got things going on. We have responsibilities. We have things we're concerned for. And so we oftentimes don't give ourselves to people who need us to be hospitable. What about fearless conversation? This is interesting. The whole notion of fearless conversation is something where people enter into dialogue with others knowing they're going to get lambasted in the process. But are you willing to venture out? Genuine humility. Maybe admitting that we are, in fact, hypocrites. That we have ways in which we genuinely need to change. And then the whole notion of divine anticipation. That God really is capable of doing something. We expect God to be the one who causes growth and work in our lives. Well, all of these, I think, are extremely important for us to at least spend a moment or two on. And so I want you to open your Bibles. Look at this one. You don't even, right now, we don't even have to go to Matthew 22. We know this, I think, quite well. And I've put the the crux of the text up here. This means pursuing, from Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus was meaning. Radical hospitality is really nothing more than loving your neighbor as yourself. And when there is a need, you meet it. And you're willing to get out of yourself, out of your comfort zone maybe, out of the walls of your own life, and enter into somebody else's life in order to minister to them and have an impact on them. And I just can't think of anything that would impact those around us and their attitudes and perspectives toward not just us, but toward our Lord, if we were actually willing to enter into their lives, walk with them, live life with people, and God is going to bless them in the process. What about fearless conversation? This one I do want you to turn to. Turn to Acts chapter 17. It's on page 785 in the Pew Bibles, if you're looking at a Pew Bible. Page 785. And here's what happens. Paul is in the city of Athens. And he looks around, and I want you to notice what the text says in verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, for Silas and Timothy, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. And then he has... A battle on his hands. But I think it's fascinating that Paul is first of all distressed by what he sees and the distressed attitude that he has, he recognizes there's a problem, leads him to say something. Now Paul, in his way, wasn't always necessarily gentle. I'm not sure Paul was always smooth. Paul talks about himself in 2 Corinthians and all the accusations he gets about being not a good speaker. Like they're always on Paul. We don't know exactly what the problem was. But Paul had a problem with speaking. And so people are always on him about, you don't speak well. You don't talk like all the philosophers do. They're rhetoricians and you're not. What's going on with you, Paul? But Paul enters into the fray. Enters into the conversation. He is willing to have the conversation. Even despite the risk that is there to himself when he has it. And sometimes I think we just need to be willing to enter in. 
Make a statement. Say something. Put in a good word for Jesus in the midst of a conversation. And yes, you may get lambasted. You may enter into a conversation you don't really want to have. That's possible. But at least we can, with some fearlessness, enter into conversation and maybe have an impact on those who are around us. What about genuine humility? Turn to Matthew chapter 7. It's on page 685 in the Pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. And I I, I just love the way that Jesus expounds on this, the way he expands the idea. He starts out in verse 1 and he says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So there's a measuring that takes place here, and I'm being measured in this like way in which I judge others. But look at what he says after this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know, we know that verse. There's probably nobody in the room who has never heard those words before. We are familiar with the language of having logs in our own eyes, planks in our own eyes. It's actually a kind of crazy image. Can you imagine somebody with a two-by-four? Eight feet long, stuck in their eye. And as they're wheeling around, looking for someone who has a speck in theirs, what's going to happen? I whack Judy in the head as I turn to see whether or not Joseph has a speck in his eye. It's exactly what would happen. It's an absurd image in one sense. And yet God wants us to be very careful about this. And you know and I know just how easy it is for us to do this. And it's just as easy for me as it is for you. Sometimes I've got planks in both eyes. Can't see a thing. Looking for somebody else who's got a speck in theirs. We need to be careful about that. The world's going to evaluate us when we treat others and each other this way. And then what about divine anticipation? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it. But what's the next line? God gave it the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. 
And we need to have some divine anticipation about God working and making things grow. Part of the reason I think that the church struggles the way that it does is simply because we don't anticipate God actually doing anything different. Is God capable of doing something differently than what he has done before? And he is. And we need to look not just with some kind of passive anticipation, but an energetic anticipation, an alive anticipation of what God can do because God is capable of doing this. And so there's a sense in which the question for the week is, are we willing simply to put ourselves into this kind of attitude? We can stay cocooned. We can busy ourselves with other things. We can keep from engaging with other people. Or we can embrace radical hospitality. We can embrace fearless conversation. We can embrace genuine humility and divine anticipation. In other words, we can continue to do what the world thinks we're doing, judging others. We can live materialistic lives and limp along in our marriages and our work relationships and our neighbor relationships, dissatisfied with life, making little difference, or something can actually be changed. And we can embrace a new perspective, the kind of perspective that really does say we're going to be radically hospitable and fearless in our conversations with genuine humility looking for and hoping for God to do wonderful things through us. And this can begin to characterize who we are. We don't have to be what the world thinks we are. We can be something radically different and in the process change their perspective, not only about the church, but change their perspective about God. And you can start this week. And so let me just ask you, What will you do this week to embrace others in hospitable, loving ways? In so many of our lives, some opportunity is going to come your way. Something is going to happen this week. And you're going to have a chance to be hospitable in some way. Will you seize that opportunity or won't you? I hope you do. God will not only bless you, and them, but he will bless the church and he will be honored if you take opportunity to be hospitable with somebody this week when that opportunity comes your way. With whom will you enter into conversation this week putting in a good word for Christ? Who will it be? Will your eyes be open enough that when the opportunity comes along that you'll see it? Because there's a very, very good chance that at some point this week that conversation could happen. You're going to have that opportunity. What will you do when the opportunity comes before you? Whom will you look on with compassion this week instead of judging them? We are so quick to evaluate and judge others. When you find yourself doing that this week, and you will, will you be able to turn that into compassion? I hope that you can. And where will you plant seeds this week, praying and expecting God to provide growth? Because he will. That's a promise. God provides the growth. You plant seeds, 
and God is going to cause growth to take place. And so I hope this week you're willing to plant some seeds. And if you do, God's going to grow. It may be that the growth that's going to take place and the seed planting is what's taking place right now and that God will cause the growth even in you and in me. I pray that he does. Pray with me, please. Holy Father, we do ask your blessings on us as individuals and as a church. We want, Lord, for you to give us opportunities. Opportunities for hospitality. Opportunities for conversation. Opportunities, Father, to not just judge others, but to have compassion. Father, we pray that you give us opportunities to fully serve you in every way, anticipating that you're going to do something wonderful because you are God. And open our lives, open our hearts, our our minds, our, our willingness that we might serve you in these ways. And God, what I want more than anything is for the perception of the world to be different about us. For the world to look at us and say things like, Oh, they must be followers of Christ because I can see in them love. I can see in them unity. They must be followers of that Jesus. Father, it's those kind of things that we would hope that others would see in us and that they would praise you as a consequence. I pray this would be the case. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.